You know, a large part, I think, of what we do, of course, is worship. When we sing, uh, we're singing those words. You individually are singing those words to God, so they're an act of worship. When we preach, you're hearing words that hopefully will call you to focus more and more on God as an act of worship. And it's certainly a time of preparation because as Pastor Matt likes to say, none of us will get out of this life alive unless the Lord returns while we're here. So we need to be prepared. And a part of what we'll talk about today, we'll get to that idea of preparation. Some of you know we used to live in St. Louis and uh, I worked at McDonnell Douglas, and which became Boeing. And part of my job, and many of you might say, this wasn't really work, but for a number of years, my job was to fly production test airplanes that came off the fighter production line in St. Louis. And we had to be prepared for anything that came up. So we were out there one day at uh, 45,000 feet, and one of our test points was to fly the airplane to Mach 2.5. And the, uh, the engines, if you understand some fighters, the engines have what would be like in a car, a passing gear, only it's a set of afterburners. So you can be in full power and then go even farther up on the throttles and it kicks in some afterburners. So that's what we did, 45,000 feet, flying uh, probably 500 knots, plugged in the afterburners and gradually watched because we had to get to the point where we told the Air Force we could fly at Mach 2.5. And as we approached Mach 2.5, about the time we hit it, the cockpit flooded with smoke. And we had a set of immediate actions that, that we learned as pilots. And I was a backseater at the time behind the pilot. So we went through our immediate actions as we turned and pointed back towards the airfield and landed uneventfully. Preparation. You and I need preparation in spiritual things too. So when the onslaught of Satan, which certainly comes to us, when it does come to us, we're prepared for it. And I like the concept that was up here this morning on illumination because that's one of the things we'll get to when we talk about the Holy Spirit is uh, one of the things he does is illumination, helps us understand Scripture. If you've listened to me before, you know that sometimes I go over things just because I think they're important and they're kind of a foundation for what we're talking about. One of those was a quote from a retired pastor by the name of Tim Keller. And here's what he said. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And two words, I think, to cover this morning that we've covered before, grace and mercy, that fit in nicely with this. Just remember, grace means I get something or you get something that you don't deserve. Mercy means... I don't get something that I do deserve. Because we'll see this morning in Zephaniah, it talks in the first part of Zephaniah, not the part we'll look at, but in the first part of what some people call the gospel of Zephaniah, it talks about the wrath of God. And that's what I deserve. 
God's wrath because of my sin, but through his mercy, I don't get that. We're in Zephaniah, which is probably, uh, if I'm not in the Old Testament enough, it's hard for me to remember where some of these books fall, but Zephaniah is a minor prophet. Minor from the standpoint of the length of the book, not the importance of the prophet Zephaniah. And I'll say again the thing that I've said before, the Old and New Testaments are inextricably linked. It's vital for us that we understand the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is that shadow that points us to all the things that are taking place in the New Testament. So when you read it that way, it's really a rich, rich piece to read and consider. And I think we'll see that in Zephaniah 3 this morning. Paul talks about the Old Testament. Jesus talks about the Old Testament. So the New Testament points back and validates what we read and study in the Old Testament. Zephaniah, the only thing we know about Zephaniah is found in the first verse of Zephaniah. So it talks about his lineage. Zephaniah actually was a great-grandson of King Hezekiah. And if you remember King Hezekiah, he was uh, among the kings of Israel and Judah. He was one of the good kings. I mean, there are a lot of them that weren't because they so easily went astray, but Hezekiah was one of the good kings. And he came, in fact, he came toward the end of his life, and he asked uh, the prophet to pray for his life to be extended, because the prophet had come to him and said, God says, get your house in order. Get your house in order, Hezekiah. So at Hezekiah's request, the prophet went away and prayed that Hezekiah's life would be extended. Came back to Hezekiah and said, Hezekiah, God's going to grant your wish. How will I know? Well, we've got this thing kind of like a sundial, and here's what you can ask for. You can either ask for the shadow to go forward on the sundial or for the shadow to go backwards all of a sudden on the sundial. So Hezekiah said, make the shadow go backwards. And God did and proved to Hezekiah that what he said in extending his life was in fact going to happen. So Hezekiah, the king, the great-grandfather of Zephaniah. Zephaniah prophesied during the time of Josiah, who fits well with Hezekiah because Josiah was another good king. And Josiah, about uh, after he became the king at age eight, about 18 years later, they were cleaning up the temple and they came running to him with the book of the law. And it just stunned Josiah as they read the book of the law to him. And immediately changed the way he governed and changed the, the way he saw the people and changed their worship in the nation so that it might conform more with what God intended for them to do. Zephaniah says more about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament than any book. And the day of the Lord to Israel meant things that are similar to our concept. Although when we talk about the day of the Lord we're looking ahead to Christ's return. When Zephaniah told them about the day of the Lord, especially in the first part, he talked about the same types of things. He talked about the wrath of God. He talked about judgment. And as we'll see in Zephaniah 3, he talked about the return. It was a prophecy of the return of the Messiah. So that's why Zephaniah is looked at as almost like the gospel of Zephaniah, because it goes from wrath to judgment to return or glorification in Zephaniah. 
Our day of the Lord, like I said, looks forward to the return of the Christ and judgment. For those of us who are believers, it's not judgment that we fear because we know that God's wrath has been satisfied. As we read in Zephaniah 3 in just a moment, three things I want us to get out of Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20 this morning. The judgments are not held against us. God is in our midst. And Christ returns, or the day of the Lord for us as believers. The judgments not held against us, 14 to 16. God is in our midst, 17 to 18. And of course, that's the Holy Spirit we'll talk about. And Christ returns the day of the Lord in verses 19 and 20. When I was, uh, it's been a couple of years in seminary in St. Louis, I had two professors which always intrigued me with their names because they were so close. One was uh, P. Robert Palmer, and the other was O. Palmer Robertson. So the names were kind of close together, but not the same. But O. Palmer Robertson, my professor, said this about Zephaniah in the first part of the book. One of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God in judgment found anywhere in Scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. The totality of the cosmos shall be consumed in his burning anger. The very order of creation shall be overturned. And of course, we know that from Scripture, too, from the prophecies of of Christ's return, that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Robertson says this about the section that we'll be looking at this morning. One of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people found anywhere in Scripture appears in the closing verses of Zephaniah. God and his people attain heights in the ecstasy of love that are hard to comprehend. Follow along with me as I read Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this, your holy word this morning. Speak to us through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives as we look for what you have to teach us and tell us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, judgments not held against us. Thinking more about God the Father and how God will judge us. Paul's pretty clear in Romans 9 that even as we look at books like this throughout the Old Testament, sometimes it's difficult to read some of the things we see. God actually uses the enemies of Israel to punish them. 
And then he punishes the enemies of Israel for punishing Israel. And a lot of times these things are hard for us to comprehend, but Paul's pretty clear in Romans 9, 19 through 24. Here's what he said. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. When God entered into covenants with the people of Israel, one of the things that was a part of that covenant was if you do this, if you're faithful, these good things will happen. If you don't do these things, here's the punishment. And the covenants tended to evolve, actually pointing the way towards the, the covenant of Christ. But we see a God who is gracious and merciful because he doesn't punish in the way he promised he would if they didn't live up to what they said they would do. And, and we're much the same way often today, aren't we? Where, where we don't live up to what we're expected to do and be as believers, but God is faithful. God is merciful. God is that perfect father who sometimes chastises us, sometimes woos us back, all sorts of different methods he uses but all focused on his love for us as his believers. Israelites knew the systems of sacrifices that were part of this concept of judgments. <clears throat> we have a, uh, Diane and I read through a, an annual through the Bible each year, and not too long ago we were in Leviticus, and I must admit that I skimmed much of what I was reading because it was, it was the sacrifices and maybe it's my age, I'm, it's getting harder for me to focus on those things. At least that's my excuse anyway. But the system of sacrifices, and they're so detailed of what God expected and what God wanted from his people and his teaching of the priests on how to do it. That's what the people knew about God and his judgments and the expectations. The wrath of God, they knew, was deserved, but covered by these sacrifices that would take place. That was a shadow of what would come in the New Testament, the sacrifice of Christ. And what we believe from the New Testament is that because of the sacrifices of Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ upon us. So God sees the blood of Christ when he looks at us because our sins are forgiven, our sins are covered by the sacrifice of Christ. Here's what Paul says in Romans 3:28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
But what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now you remember, let me stop here a second. You remember what Ephesians says about our righteousness. Our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. That's the picture of our righteousness without the blood of Christ. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. There's a righteousness that comes from Christ for us. And the plan of eternal life satisfies God's righteous requirements upon us as people who deserve his wrath. If you're old enough, I won't tell you how old you have to be, But if you're old enough, you remember somebody named Patty Hearst. This goes back to 1974. Patty Hearst was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, who was, uh, this was before smartphones and and all the other things. He was a great newspaper baron on the West Coast, William Randolph Hearst. And in 1974, Patty Hearst was kidnapped by a group called the Symbionese Liberation Army. And they really wanted to, granddad to spend some of his money on people, groceries and things like that. So their, their goals were somewhat altruistic, but they certainly didn't use uh, means that were considered the right means to go about them. So they kidnapped Patty Hearst, and a little bit later she showed up on television speaking on behalf of the SLA, robbed a bank with them, and absolutely, you know, became one of them for a while. She was freed and they decided to take her to trial. Of course, she said she'd been brainwashed, and uh, she went to trial and received seven years as the judgment of the court against her. President Jimmy Carter decided to commute her sentence to time served, 22 months. President Bill Clinton, at the urging of President Carter, pardoned her, such that the judgment was no longer held against her. We've been pardoned. We've been pardoned as believers. God reminds us of his salvation, hopefully every day, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was there at different times and in different ways. Certainly the prophets who prophesied accurately within Israel had the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit spoke through them. You remember with prophets, one of the requirements of prophet was you had to be 100% accurate, 100% accurate. And the prophets we read about, the prophets who have books in our Bible, were 100% accurate, often when they didn't necessarily want to be accurate. Jeremiah, remember, got to the place where he kind of said, these are my words now. Oh, no, not again. Do I have to tell the king that? 
they're going to do terrible things to me. And, but he was faithful. He was faithful, and he did what the Lord wanted him to do and said what the Lord wanted him to say. Let me give you four examples of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that the people in Zephaniah's time would understand. Moses. Numbers 11 says this about Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting. And let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So the Holy Spirit was on Moses. And if you look at Moses' life, you can see God moving in each step of Moses' life. He was protected from death as an infant. And then who found him? Pharaoh's daughter. And of course, looking far ahead, which Moses couldn't at the time, there was a purpose in Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses. Who nursed Moses? His mother. Again, there was purpose in all of this. Moses was in a position to lead the Israelites out of Egypt because he was at the height of Pharaoh's court. And so that's what he did. God put him in that position. God guided him through those phases of his life through the power of his Holy Spirit. And then Joshua. Listen to Numbers 27. Joshua is another one who worked through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So Joshua replaced Moses to lead the people in the promised land. And if you saw, if you saw a matrix of the battles that took place when Joshua led the people in, you'd see the number of countries that Joshua and the Israelites battle, and, and won. So part of the process the Lord used to bring the land of the people as he promised. One of the big stories that, uh, that we all hear, at least I did going through Sunday school, was about Joshua and Jericho and how the people, uh, how improbable was that? Probably the people of Jericho looking out over the walls and going, you know, scratching their heads going, what are these people doing? You know, they're, they're marching around our town. And next day, they're marching again. And on the seventh day, they're marching again, and then they blow their trumpets, and the walls fall down. The Lord working through Joshua and the people of Israel. And then one of my favorites, because he gives me hope, and he can give you hope when it comes to interacting with God, is David. You know, David was such a flawed person just like I am. 
and yet God worked through him, God blessed him, going all the way back to his battle with Goliath. Here's this young teenager who comes forward to say, probably his voice was still changing, I won't do that, but comes forward to say, I can handle this, I can handle this. And I imagine it's, get away boy, get out of here. But when they finally suited him up and he dropped the armor because it was too heavy, and he walks out there and he won the battle because of the Lord. He won the battle because of the Lord. And David was such an improbable choice to be king. If you remember uh, in 1 Samuel 16, let's read that about David's choice as the king of Israel. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And yet David's sin was something that we're all familiar with and aware of with Bathsheba. How he contrived to put Bathsheba's husband after he found out that uh, he was coming back after he had slept with Bathsheba. Puts him at the front of the battle where he could be killed. And then the prophet Nathan comes to David and talks about I've heard of a man that did this and that, and all of a sudden, David's eyes are open because Nathan's talking about him and about his great sin. And there's the great passage in Psalm 51 of David's confession. And we've talked about confession before and said that if, if you confess your sin, it's a reminder and an indication that you are, in fact, a believer because you agree with God. You agree with God about your sin. Instead of continuing merrily through life doing what you want to do. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then God says, of course, that the Messiah will come from David's line. There will always be a king on the throne of David, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. And the fourth one is King Saul. Just to say that with King Saul, 1 Samuel tells us that the Spirit of God departed from him. The Spirit departed from King Saul. John 14 is a familiar passage for many of us too because it's now in the New Testament, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. And he reminds us and he promises us that when he leaves... There's going to be another comforter that's sent to us. And I use this illustration a lot because I already, it just struck me as an easy way to understand it. If you've got a favorite pen or a pencil or something like that and you lose it, and all of a sudden you go to a store and you find the very same pen or pencil that you thought was so great and you get it back. And that's the language here, the original language talks about this other comforter that way. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to provide you with another comforter, and the implication is, just like me. 
Another comforter just like me, John 14, 16 through 17 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. And that's an important word we'll get to in just a minute. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Some important functions of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians, Paul says the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to be servants and show a preference for others. Illumination, the word we talked about this morning, illumination, which is why it's so important for, important for us to study the word, to listen to the word, to sing songs that are true to the word. There are a lot of songs out there that are good experiences, but somehow kind of miss the point of scripture. So songs that are scriptural songs, it's important for us to be involved with those because that's illumination. The Holy Spirit brings back to my mind those things that I've sung and read and studied and memorized. And most importantly, he brings them back when I'm faced with a decision that lets me say, I'm going to take this path, which is the right path, or I could take this path, which is the wrong path. It may be a path that's sinful, it may be a path that uh, I'm headed in the wrong direction for some reason, but that illumination helps me understand and remember the verses that are most important. That's, uh, remember that verse from a long time ago, Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against God. So the word helps keep me from sinning through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit prays for us. There'll be times we don't know how to pray or what to pray or what to say. And Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit will do that for us when we reach points like that. A lot of times we know exactly how to pray, but there are times you go, or you may not know it's something you need, and it's the Holy Spirit interceding for you and praying for you. Romans 8. He's our guide. We've got tough decisions to make. The Holy Spirit guides us. And again, it's partly through illumination, I think, too, because we, we study the Word and we know the Word, and that Holy Spirit that lives within us as believers can guide us into decisions that honor the Lord. And then, this is a, one of the important ones. I, you know, we always say that this is the most important and and maybe that's true, maybe it's not. You know, we all value things differently. We may see other things as more important. But to me, this is, uh, this is really important. The Holy Spirit is a sign and a seal of your salvation and my salvation. That's the Holy Spirit. And we, we read the verse that said, that's forever. Scripture is clear when it says God's got you in his hands and nothing can take you out. Nothing. And then, of course, that... Uh, the great passage in Romans 8 about no condemnation. No condemnation for you and I as believers. Here's Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it 
to the praise of his glory. A sign and a seal forever. Anybody ever fish for bonefish? You know what bonefish are? I only, uh, ah, Rusty Emerson isn't here. He might know as a Florida guy. I only know because in my fly fishing magazines I've got sometimes it points out bone fishermen who actually go fly fishing for bonefish. And a bonefish is typically in uh, tropical waters like around the south of Florida. And it's a, uh, just like it says, it's a bony fish and usually in shallow water. So there was a guy who went to a marina down there one day and said, I need to, I need to rent a boat. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to go fishing for bonefish. Have you ever fished for bonefish before? No. Oh, you need a guide. I've had friends like this who are great fishermen too, would answer the same way. I don't need no guide. I'm just, I'm going. I'm taking my poles and my boat and I'm going fishing. So he went out there. And when, he, of course, the marina owner is going to take his money to rent the boat. When he came back from fishing, the owner said to him, what'd you catch? Nothing. What'd you see? There's nothing out there. So he left, and uh, for some reason, he got the bug again. He thought he'd try it again. So he came back, and this time the marine owner convinced him to get a guide. So he got a guide who was probably the best bonefish guide around. And when, with bone fishermen, you get a boat that's good for shallow water, and you pole it, P-O-L-E. You know, the guide stands in the back of the boat with a pole, just kind of moving you along through that shallow water. So they're heading out with the guide, and the guy says, there they are over there. There's nothing over there. I've been there before. There aren't any fish over there. No, they're over there. They're over there. Let's go. So he went over there. Just throw your line out there, and you'll get it. So he threw his line out, and sure enough, bonefish were all over the place. And with the help of the guide, he saw what was going on and what he had to do. The Holy Spirit's our guide. We may head off into life and try to ignore the Holy Spirit, but who knows where we need to go, what we need to do, and how we need to do it. But the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Holy Spirit, our guide. And he points us to Christ and helps remind us of the imminent return of Christ. That's something we need to hold on to. And when we say imminent return, sometimes we can look at that and go, man, it's been almost 2,000 years. It doesn't sound very imminent to me. But remember in Scripture, time is not for God the way it is for you and me. You know, God talks about how he's going to punish Israel, and 400 years later, he punishes them. Time is different for God. You know, God is looking at, in this broad span of eternity, and saying, the imminent return of Christ, he's coming. He's coming back. You need to be ready, and I need to be ready. The plan of Messiah in the Old Testament, they thought, and this is through some of the words in the New Testament, that Christ was going the Messiah was going to come, and what was he going to do? He was going to bring them back to power as a nation. So they were part of that shadow of what was to come. So their understanding, of course, wasn't like ours is today, because we can read, we can see, our interaction with this is different from theirs. So they saw a political Messiah coming would all of a sudden put them back in the position of power. If you've got something you can turn to, turn to Luke chapter 2. This is one of my favorite stories, and it's uh, 
just after the part that we read with the family every Christmas in Luke 2. And if you're looking for it, there's a wonderful song that uh, Michael Card wrote about, uh, about Simeon. And this is, uh, those are the verses I want to read you about Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2 and verses 22, starting with 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now remember, the time of purification was the time after the circumcision. Circumcision at eight days. Purification for the woman would be either 40 days or 80 days. 40 days, as I recall, for a male. And if she'd had a, a girl, a female, 80 days. So they were coming back after 40 days to the temple for, for Mary's time of uh, sacrifice that she had to make. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And Anna, the same thing in verse 36. And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? Simeon or Anna waiting as long as they waited for Christ. And all of a sudden, I can imagine Mary or Joseph carrying the baby Jesus. And as they pass Simeon, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit goes, that's him. And he just gloried in the fact that he had seen Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that the Christ, and these are Christ's words in John 14 again, promises to return. In Acts 1, he ascends and makes that same promise. And his return in 1 Thessalonians 4 is spoken of as a spectacular return. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is not for us to fear the return of the Lord. Paul's pretty clear in Thessalonians. We need to use the return as a, a way to encourage each other. This is what we're preparing for. This is our foundation we're building through worship, 
through praise. This is our preparation. And the time will come, Paul says again in Philippians and John in Revelation, that every knee will bow. So today, if you speak of Christ to some people, they may turn you aside. But there'll come a day when everyone will look to him as Christ. Some will not be able to see heaven. Those of us who are here or come back certainly will. But every knee will bow and claim him finally as the ruler and the king of all the, all the earth. And then my favorite passage in Revelation, of course, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Remember, our deeds now, because we're believers, are no longer filthy rags, but are righteous in his sight. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. If I told you the title of a poem, what would you, what would you say it is? The poem's called Faith, Review, and Expectation. Faith's Review and Expectation. Anybody know what that is? I only know because I, I looked it up, so... The first line to faith, review, and expectation is this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Written, of course, by John Newton. We hear a lot about John Newton anytime we sing Amazing Grace about his background. John Newton himself, in fact, was a slave for a while to a chief, the wife of a chief in Africa. Went on to be a slave trader, left that, and I think the foundation, I believe the foundation was because of his mother, because of his family, because from an early age, the foundation was a spiritual foundation. And that's what he came to in those days and became a great proponent of abolition when it came to slavery, working with William Wilberforce, the great UK, United Kingdom abolitionist. In his later years, he'd become a, uh, an Anglican pastor, preached as often as he could, and in his later years, he had to have somebody standing with him to help hold him up so he could preach because he was becoming much more infirm. And he was preaching one day with an assistant standing next to him. And Newton said to the congregation, Jesus is precious. Very soft voice because of his age. Jesus is precious. And his assistant whispered to him, Mr. Newton, you already said that. I know, and I'll say it again, Jesus is precious. He was precious to John Newton. He needs to be precious to us. And we believe uh, in his imminent return. He's coming again. Let me give you four things to consider by way of application as we leave this morning. You and I need to worship daily. 
We need to worship daily. Now, I know, having been through this myself with families and things like that, there are all sorts of things that get me off track and still do when it comes to worshiping daily. And worshiping daily may be singing, may be reading, may be praying. You need to have a plan for doing it with your family. We used to do it with our family, and I can tell you it was in fits and starts at times because there's always somebody out there trying to get you off track. Okay, we have a powerful enemy in Satan that wants to move us away from doing things that help us learn and help us bring honor and glory to the Lord. A good example for this, which I didn't know he was doing this at the time, if you saw the posting, was Jim Kobeluck. Jim, when he talked to Pastor Matt before he left, said that he had, you know, the, uh, the members book that we're told at times, pray for members from this person to this person. Well, Jim said he had prayed through the members book over 50 times, praying for each of us. He had an annual Bible reading plan, and he read through the Bible once a year, every year. This is somebody who was quietly doing what needed to be done when it came to his personal growth. It won't always go well with you in trying to worship daily, but you and I need to come back to it when we're not doing well with it and just say, this is good for me, this is helpful for me, this is the right thing to do, I'm going to get back into it. And if you're like me, you may get, get back into it multiple times over your life because the Lord knows that we're still people who were made of dust. We still struggle in this life. So keep coming back to daily worship. Learn to be a servant and prefer others over yourself. That's the command of Scripture. Why did Christ come? One of the reasons to be a servant. Remember the, uh, the verses and the song that goes with it? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. So we need a servant's mentality when we're interacting with each other, when we're interacting with our family. We need to find ways when we've got a choice to make over things. If somebody is concerned about something, how do I prefer them over myself to show my servanthood? Thirdly, understand the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers. We touched on some of that this morning, and it's so important. It's so important because it's our power in this world that's become daily more and more confusing. The Holy Spirit's our power. He gives us understanding. He helps keep us on the right path. We need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit and depend upon that. And then... Finally, watch for opportunities in your daily life to share your faith with people. And that, I think, for me, maybe not for you, but that can be pretty scary at times. Especially if you've developed a relationship with somebody and all of a sudden you think they're going to say, what? You're a believer? I never would have thought that. that that's not what I wanted to say. So I need to practice more being a believer in front of the people that I spend time with. And it may be what we call deeds of mercy, just doing acts of kindness for people. It may be words of comfort. I mean, who doesn't need words of comfort in these days, especially the non-believer? You and I need it, but we have a hope, we have a faith, and that's something they don't have. So find ways when you can just extend words of comfort to them or guidance to the faith. There may come times when it's so obvious that the Lord wants you to say something that you and I need to say it. And he'll, he'll let you know that. 
Ask for guidance. Ask for the Lord to guide you in your relationships with people so that you might know how and when to share your faith. Worship the Lord daily. Learn to be a servant. Understand the work of the Holy Spirit and watch for opportunities in your daily life to share your faith. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer this morning?